Please stay tuned for Forthright Radio. Welcome to this Forthright Radio for November 18th, 2020. I'm Joy LaClaire. We have a very full show for you today. With us for the hour is award-winning journalist, author, former senior associate in the Democracy and Rule of Law program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and special advisor to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Sarah Chase. Her latest book on corruption in America and what is at stake is published by Knopf. Her fluency in French, Arabic, and Pashto not only allowed her to be an NPR reporter in Paris, North Africa, and the Balkans from 1996 to 2002, but after the final, she reported Afghanistan. In 2002, she left reporting to contribute to rebuilding that country. She arrived in Kandahar two days after the fall of the Taliban and lived there till 2009, where she helped establish the Argonne Cooperative in 2005 and became intimately acquainted with kleptocracy. In 2010, Sarah Chase became a special advisor to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Admiral Mike Mullen. In this capacity, she contributed to strategic U.S. policy on Afghanistan, Pakistan, and the Arab Spring. Her previous books include The Punishment of Virtue, Inside Afghanistan After the Taliban, and Thieves of State, Why Corruption Threatens Global Security. We welcome you to Forthright Radio, Chair Sarah Chase. Thank you for joining us today. Joy, thanks so much for having me. Well, let's get to work. There is so much in your book on corruption in America and what is at stake. To begin with, when you speak of corruption, what do you mean? Um, it's so interesting. When I was talking about corruption from the perspective of Afghanistan, I often heard, you know, well, that's really just part of the culture over there. And what was really interesting is I only got that reaction from Westerners. I never in all the years I worked on corruption, either in Afghanistan when I was living there or afterwards when I, when I tried to draw some of the lessons from that experience to see whether they applied to other developing countries, I never heard from Afghans or Tunisians or Nepalese or, or Nigerians, oh, Sarah, would you get off your corruption soapbox? This is just how we do things. Um, and so, but what I would like to say, so, 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 Residents of all of those countries that I've worked in have a very clear idea of what corruption is. They often tell you a story to define it rather than giving you a dictionary definition. Things like, you know, when there gets all the development um, resources and then he surrounds himself with armed thugs so we can't come to him to lodge our grievances. That's corruption. Things like that. And so that's a kind of interesting sentence and it, and it leads to the real distinction I want to make here. 
I'm not talking about a specific instance by a specific isolated venal official who essentially does a one-to-one transaction, some money for something he or she does or doesn't do. That's how corruption is defined under U.S. law, and it's defined so narrowly that you practically have to sign a contract at this point in order for you to be prosecutable for corruption. What I'm talking about is much to what the Afghans were describing to me and what I saw, which is to say networks of people who weave back and forth across sectors of our society that we tend to think of as being separate. Like the, the network includes, you know, top businessmen and government officials, and they swap places. And it may even include, you know, outright criminals drug runners or traffickers of various things. Um, It may even include, I want to say, violent gangs um, or thugs, if you will, people who can commit violence on behalf of the network and yet be plausibly deniable. The networks are also often vertically integrated. And what that means is when people lower down on the totem pole benefit from the corrupt system, well, they kick some of the proceeds up the line. Uh, And I would see that in developing countries where, you know, the sort of street level corruption is much more in in your face than it is in the United States, um, where, you know, policemen who might stop your car and invent some violation and then shake you down for whatever the equivalent of a couple dollars, well, they don't get to keep all that money. They kick some of it up the line. It goes all the to the, you know, interior minister in the capital. In a country like Afghanistan, and my numbers are out of date, but back in about 2010, there were two different bribery surveys. And if you sort of look at the numbers that they come out with, the total of this kind of extorted bribe added up in Afghanistan to something between two and five billion US dollars a year. It's a gigantic amount of money. Or you might see things like, you know, to use the Trump administration as an example, although I don't think it is the, you know, the only example of corruption in the United States at the moment, it is a little bit of an exaggerated example, Um, when you have government officials deliberately holding their functions or even personal functions in Trump properties. That's another way that, or, you know, sending troops, detouring them in order to stay in Scotland in a Trump property. That's some of the ways that subordinates kick benefits up the line. Well, as I mentioned in the introduction, you lived in Kandahar from 2009 to, excuse me, 2002 to 2009, and you were working with men and women in a cooperative soap-making enterprise. And of the 20 with whom you worked, you write that they represented nine different tribes and ethnic groups, and ten if you include yourself. Yeah. Now, they told you it wasn't religious fanaticism that was driving their friends and cousins into the arms of the Taliban. What did they say was the reason? Corruption. 
Absolutely corruption. I mean, the, you know, let me just go back. This is Kandahar, Afghanistan. These are religiously conservative people. They are practicing Muslims, all of them. We broke for prayers. Um, the women wore head coverings inside the cooperative, but they did not cover their faces. So that was kind of interesting. You had males and females not from the same family who were uncovered. But, you know, they they are religiously observant people. However, um, they did not like the Taliban form of um, kind of imposed strictures. Um, and they did not have a problem with Western culture. You know, they understood that different people have different cultures. Their problem was, and their neighbor's problems and their relative's problem was, the, you know, abusive corruption of the government that the United States was supporting. And that meant that basically every single time you came into contact with a government official, you had to cough up some money. And, and this is important, it wasn't just a matter of money. If a police officer had stood out in the middle of the road and stopped a passing motorist and said, look it, my salary is ridiculously low and I'm on the front lines here and I have a daughter who needs shoes, could you help out a little bit. I mean, people would take the shoes off their own daughters to give it to someone who said that. Instead, what happens is you're shaken down in a very uh, contemptuous and humiliating way. And when you're poor and proud, I mean, that's a wound. All you have left is your dignity. And I remember I had a former police officer in my, in my cooperative, and one time his brother got mistreated in this way and my cooperative member was so furious what was his brother that he said by god if tomorrow i see somebody planting an explosive in the road and i see a police vehicle driving down that road i'm not going to say anything now I don't know if that's actually literally true, but the idea that a former police officer is telling me, an American, that in effect he would collude with Taliban, it, it, for me, that just said it all. And I, and I saw the same thing. I talked to people who, you know, had kind of rooted for Boko Haram in northern Nigeria. Now, these were not radical Islamist people. These are, again... Uh, observant Muslims, but you, uh, but they, these were people who had done advanced degrees in the United States, and they were in contracting, or one was a movie maker, one was, you know, one was uh, owned a small hotel. These were, you know, very highly educated, not at all extremist individuals, but they were so beside themselves at the corruption, and interestingly, there as here you know, often where the rubber hits the road is with the police. And early on, Boko Haram was only going after the police. And so these people said in the early, first early months, we were for them. We were for them. You know, and then as things start to spin off into a more and more extreme direction, people often regret it. But in the case of the Taliban, I mean, again, basically... I want to say friends of mine who were opposed to the Taliban's project for their country found themselves obliged to take disputes to Taliban justice because the, the 
government justice sector was so unbelievably corrupt that you just did not have any opportunity to get a, let's say, substantively based solution. It was just whoever could pay the most for the for the decision would get the decision in their direction. Okay, one more question about Afghanistan. Troop withdrawals were announced yesterday affecting Afghanistan from 4,500 down to 2,500. The New York Times uh, reported today, quote, if it were not for the air support of U.S. forces, the Taliban would be sitting inside Kandahar City now, end of the quote. Colonel Zabiullah uh, Gorzang, an Afghan army regimental commander in Kandahar province said Tuesday. I wonder uh, briefly what your thoughts are on this. It's really hard for me to answer this question briefly. I actually don't answer current Afghanistan questions anymore because, look, um, once okay, we, just, we can leave, Sarah, well, we leave it at that if you let, want. Well, let, let, me, let me just put it this way. All right. Once once the United States decided that it was not going to address the systemic corruption of the Afghan government, that it was not going to cease enabling and reinforcing that systemic corruption on its own, then the project, as stated, the U.S. or international project in Afghanistan, as stated, was destined to lose. It was destined to fail. Um, it's not, you know, Afghans don't need air support. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the Taliban don't have air support. So the, it's not a matter of military prowess. It's a matter of, do you, are you supporting a government that Afghan citizens can be proud of? And if they can be proud of their government, they're, they, you know, they're Afghans too. And the other side is Afghans. They can fight the Taliban off in a minute. The problem with is that, you know, if you claim to support the Afghan government, then you get into a negotiation with the Taliban from which you have excluded the Afghan government. You then take away all of the Afghan government's leverage, meaning, number one, the prisoners that were in jail, and number two, U.S. troops. And then you're expecting the Afghan government to be able to negotiate, you know, Evenly with the Taliban, it's it's symbolically, I mean, a real knife in the back. And then to to announce that you're going to pull troops out further when the Taliban have actually been stepping up their attacks against Afghan civilians, you really are handing the country over to the Taliban. And so while I don't believe in keeping troops there if the United States was not prepared to um, really conduct its mission properly to help the Afghans build a government that they could be proud of. You know, there's no point in having U.S. troops bear the brunt of that failure. On the other hand, to pull them out now under these circumstances is almost, uh, it's almost an explicit and deliberate slap in the face to a government that you claim to be allied with. We're speaking with Sarah Chase. Her latest book is On Corruption in America and What is at Stake. Sarah, uh, your book goes all the way back to our primate yeah. ancestry. 
Um, it's not yeah. comprehensive. I just I just want to tell folks listening, I don't go all, you know, yes, I touch upon our primate ancestors, but believe me, this is not like a chronology of corruption from, you know, the first days of, of speciation of Homo sapiens. I selected a couple of specific moments in prehistory and history to, to touch upon. That's true. <laughs> I will say this, however, it's very thoroughly footnoted, uh, 90 plus pages of endnotes. Um, all right, but um, you incorporate mythology as metaphor. Yeah. yeah. And you go into the history of money. Now, I was particularly intrigued by your section on how the, the Greeks dealt with the innovation of money and that they originated their transfer of wealth um, in the shape of spits on which meat is cooked. Would you please explain yeah. that? Wow, you have put your finger, Joy, in on the very paradox of money. It's really remarkable. So bear with me a moment while I, while I ex sort of get at this. The evolutionary side of this that really blew my mind, and this is a theory, obviously it's, you know, it's you know likely debated and things like that but 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 a number of primatologists and anthropologists have been working on the issue of how did we get our conscience how did we get you know our moral system as a species and um a number of folks and one of the um the i found the clearest uh, is a man named Christopher Bohm, who is both a primatologist and an anthropologist. He has been for years on the origins of egalitarianism. And it looks like um, that is one of the things that makes us human. It's a social revolution that we, you know, kind of pulled on the primate order. With very few exceptions, primates are um, uh, hierarchical. Um, they have some egalitarian tendencies that could be built upon, but it looks like humans until agriculture were uh, almost entirely uh, egalitarian. And so Bohm wondered, and that's like 150,000 years. That's a really long time. And Bohm is trying to figure out why and how did we do it? And what he comes up with is that it had to do with meat eating. And that's an, another thing that helped us you know, or that also uh, helped us develop our large brains, which is another thing that apparently makes us human. <laughs> yes, sometimes wonder. But um, and and the point is that while our closest cousins, chimpanzees, eat meat occasionally, it's not a staple, and therefore it is a very hierarchical thing. Whoever hunts the game, it's the alpha male who gets the carcass, and then doles out a little bit, uh, a few scraps to his, if you will, ruling elite coalition, right? His cronies. Humans started making meat their staple. 
Now we're talking big game here. We're talking mastodons. We're talking, you know, woolly rhinoceroses. You're not going to, as a lone hunter, bring one of those down alone. Therefore, you're really talking hunting bands. And to survive, if meat is now your staple, you need those bands to hold together, those hunting parties to hold together. So how do you do it? You share the meat equally. It's incredibly important. You share the meat equally. Um, And... What Bohm found is when he then started looking at ethnographies of hunter-gatherer tribes is that one of the things that gets you punished by the tribe is if you steal or hoard or snatch or hog more than your share of the meat. So now we come to spits. Spit, so in ancient Greece... Religious festivals always included a sacrifice and offering of um, meat animals to the gods. But what's interesting is the gods only got like the entrails. They got a little bit of liver and you know some kidneys and stuff like that. Really what was going on at those sacrifices is the meat was being divided equally among the community. And so this hunt, even though by that time ancient Greece was sedentary and agricultural, still that hunter-gatherer egalitarianism was being reenacted among the community. And isn't it kind of interesting that, you know, ancient Greece is where we first start getting democracy in or the you know, precursor of democracy in in uh, complex society. And so the way they were passing the meat around was on spits, which are very ordinary items, right? I mean, they're piece, chunks of metal. They're not gold or silver, which is how wealth was stored, you know, in Babylon and things like that. These are just ordinary iron spits. But they become um, a marker for equal value, because the meat had to be shared out equally. So you've got five pieces of meat on a, sta- on a spit. And so a spit tends to start to um, embody, in a way, that value. And so they started being used as a proto-currency, spits. And then eventually, in Anatolia, um, came the real innovation of money, which is, again, um, a piece of metal whose trade value is separate from its intrinsic value. That's what's interesting about a spit, is it doesn't matter if one spit weighs a little bit more or a little bit less than another. A spit's a spit's a spit, just like a dime is a dime is a dime. I mean, we don't weigh out the amount of silver, nickel, and copper in a dime, uh, let alone in the you know, electronic signals, which is how we now store money. So the irony about money is that When it first appears in a society in quantity, it tends to have a leveling effect. It tends to be connected with democratic tendencies. It tends to be a contrary... It it breaks down aristocracy as a sort of elite system. The problem is that once societies start getting constructed around money, then a new aristocracy develops around who has the most of it or who can hoard it or who can rig the system so as to um, so as to channel more of it to them and their networks. And let me just finish this already long answer by referring back to, you mentioned mythology. And it's true. I mean, for a book on 
current events, you know, it's pretty crazy that I plunge readers back into fairy tales. But the fact is, you know, we can call it mythology or we can call it sacred stories. These stories are are deeply true. And I fear that in, you know, turning our backs on them and dismissing them as fairy tales or as myths, we're actually missing out on a storehouse of wisdom. And sometimes I fear that we are therefore kind of being forced to live our mythology in the flesh. And that's why I thought it was important to really explore a couple of these stories. So, what the one I chose uh, to illustrate this issue is the myth of Midas. Remember the guy who, he was a king, uh, who did a favor for a god, and in gratitude the god said, okay, I'll give you one wish, whatever you want, and he says, I want everything I touch to turn to gold. The god was not real happy about that, but had made a promise, and so, so it was, and Midas is delighted and starts touching things and they turn to gold and he's really excited and then oh boy it's lunchtime so let me sit down and and you know pour some water in my wine and take a sip and suddenly he realizes he's about to die because he can't eat or drink anything and nathaniel hawthorne retold this story and gave midas a daughter and i think that telling really captures the essence of what this myth is about because he adored his daughter and when she saw his distress his sudden distress she goes running over to comfort him he bends down to kiss her forehead and that precious irreplaceable person child is turned into a lump of metal that's the midas disease Sarah, so, I've got Sarah. I'm going to interrupt you there because um, we're halfway through the program now, and there is so much more I want to talk about. about. Right? Yes. Well, let me let me just because it, and then we can pivot immediately to. No, I'm going to summarize. <laughs> okay. The, the other myth that you talk about is the myth of the Hydra, and the thing about the Hydra is it's a snake-like monster that has many, many different heads. And the, the trick with the Hydra is, if you remove one of the heads, two more grow back in its place. Hercules was sent, it's one of his 12 labors, was sent to um, get rid of the Hydra, because uh, you can imagine, he tries, he starts bashing the heads, but like I said, it just multiplies them. He required the assistance of his charioteer when he sliced off a head before two could grow back. The charioteer would sear the wound, and then that prevented the he uh, the heads from growing back. If you want more detail, uh, Sarah Chase does a beautiful job of extrapolating on that in her book on corruption in America and what is at stake. However, I want to move on to the 19th century. And the Civil War plays a crucial part in to the um, burgeoning of corruption in the United States. Um, you mentioned the role of J.P. Morgan, who got contracts. He bought rifles from the government, which were defective, and then sold them back to the government 
killing untold numbers of Union troops uh, because of their defectiveness. And I was particularly impressed with what you excerpted of Abraham Lincoln's first State of the Union address. It's so prescient. I was I got shivers. Um, I wonder if you would share with us that excerpt. Yes, I will, but not yet. Okay. <laughs> not yet. Let me just, because I wasn't going to talk about the Hydra. I wanted to say something really critically important here, which is the point about money is once you make it a um, a yardstick for measuring success, then into a race with no finish line. It's a critically important thing that the Midas myth conveys. There's no such thing as enough. And, and here was myth conveys you then start converting everything of irreplaceable value be it the land on the land what's under the land the air human creativity human labor and this will lead us into the um into the abraham lincoln quote human uh relationships all of that gets converted into lifeless metal. If you put people infected with the Midas disease in charge of your society, they will start converting everything that matters in that society into zeros in bank accounts. Um, and there's another quote from a president um, that really, uh, in, in On Corruption in America, that really touches on that. It's Robert Kennedy on gross domestic product. If we judge the United States of America by that, it counts air pollution and cigarette advertising and ambulances to clear our highways of carnage. It counts special locks for our doors and the jails for the people who break them. And he goes on and on and on. And then he says, it measures neither our wit nor our courage, neither our wisdom nor our learning, neither our compassion nor our devotion to our country. It measures everything, in short, except that which makes life worthwhile. So that's, he's really talking about the Midas disease there. I went to the 19th century because I was looking for another time when the Hydra, meaning one of these interlocking networks, corrupt networks that included criminals like J.P. Morgan, as you point out, as well as business people and, and members of government. When was the last time that the, Amer that the United States was in the grip of this kind of a network as, as tightly as it is today? And I found the 19th century. And so here is what Abraham Lincoln uh, said He said that um, labor is prior to and independent of capital. Now, he is talking in mid-19th century capital labor vocabulary. I'll note that I am not, in this book, talking about capitalism. I'm talking about systemic corruption. And I don't think the two are necessarily identical. So, so let me just lay that out. Labor is prior to and independent of capital. Capital is only the fruit of labor and could never have existed if labor had not first existed. Labor is the superior of capital and deserves much the higher consideration, the opposite of the way that um, those two are remunerated in the United States today. Capital gets much higher returns than labor does, as we all know. Um, 
let workers beware of surrendering a political power which they already possess and which, if surrendered, will surely be used to close the door of advancement against such as they and to fix new disabilities and burdens upon them till all of liberty shall be lost. In effect, if you surrender your collective power, uh, the system will be rigged against you. And the way that the system has been rigged is through the operation of these coalitions or networks of um, wealth maximizers. And so I found, as I looked at that 19th century period, I found the parallels with today absolutely extraordinary. It, the same functioning of the same type of networks, uh, in and out, shuttling in and out of government, twisting and bending laws and, and, and even constitutional amendments to serve not the purposes for which they were obviously passed, but to serve the purposes of the network instead. Um, and uh, basically hollowing out or crippling any government agencies or institutions that might have actually been defending the citizenry against the corruption of the network. Um, that's exactly what the situation was back there. I would say the differences were the revenue streams were very similar. The revenue streams, which are the same ones I've seen um, in developing countries all around the world, uh, finance, energy, high-end, real estate, and construction. And we see those again today, those three in the middle. Today, I think back then, steel and other manufacturing revenue streams played a greater part than they do today. And today, I think you could look at pharma, you could look at industrial agriculture and, and food, and you could look at tech, obviously, as kind of new new streams that have been added to the picture. Now, I'm going to assume that some listeners have heard our shows over the years, and particularly Operation and Democracy, a wonderful show on for years on KZYX and Z, to talk about uh, a good deal of specifics. But what I want you to do, Sarah Chase, is talk about the end of the 19th century, mm. as particularly farmers organized themselves into what became known as the populist movement. And I had always used that perspective for the word populism. Absolutely. As, Thank as you, Joy. As opposed to what we think of populism these days, which is yes. reactionary. But please talk about what they organized and especially talk about the issue of the gold standard, because here we are, again, current events. Uh, yesterday, the Senate blocked Judy Shelton's nomination to the Federal Reserve. Among other things, she is a proponent of the gold standard. So uh, please take it from there, Sarah Chase. Yeah, thank you, Joy. So once uh, I looked at you know, once I decided, okay, the last time that we were in the grips of kleptocratic networks, if you will, uh, as tightly as we are today, is this period, you know, which I sort of call the Gilded Age, but I actually mean a little bit longer. I mean, literally from at least about 1870 all the way to the New Deal in about 1935. Um, and, and so then I wanted to see, well, how did we get out of it? How do we get out of it back then? And so I started looking at what some of the resistance movements were at the time. And 
boy, were there. And they were creative and they were uh, persistent and they were courageous and they were sometimes violent and turbulent and they were celebratory. I mean, that I was so inspired by these movements. And as you say, perhaps one of the most unexpected one, I had heard of the labor movements. I'd heard of some of the, you know, um, um, experimental political uh, ideologies that were that were being developed. But I really didn't know much about the Farmers Alliance. And this is a, a movement that grew up in what then was the West, which is to say West Texas, and then going northward from there up into, um, you know, Kansas and Missouri and, and places like that, largely. Um, and it started out as an educational movement. And, you know, and so you had people driving their covered wagons to the little schoolhouses, you know, dozens of miles away once or twice a week to listen to traveling lectures. And it was a really interesting kind of curriculum that included both farming techniques, but also really sophisticated um, political and economic thinking, including, as you mentioned, uh, monetary supply. And the understanding that if population is growing and production is growing, but um, the money supply is fixed, then, you know, your debts are in a fixed currency, but you are getting less and less return, monetary return, for crops that you're selling because the quantity of crops is growing. And so farmers were getting screwed and they were you know, proponents of a flexible money supply. So let me take this back to our original or earlier discussion of spits and how when money first makes an, uh, a large-scale entry into a society, it's democratizing. That's what the farmers were out asking for, is more plentiful money, which has a democratizing effect. Whereas those who are trying to wealth, well, they want a fixed money supply because then every item of currency is going to have uh, higher and higher value as more and more people are trying to get their hands on it, basically. So the Farmers Alliance, which turned into the popular party, developed really, really interesting and uh, sophisticated solutions to the problems besetting that, that you know, we're besetting these populations because of the kleptocratic nature of the government. And that included uh, paper currency, it included direct election of senators, it included a really interesting kind of collective um, uh, mechanism for collective purchase of agricultural inputs and then collective wholesale um, sale uh, systems that exist, for example, in French wine country, where you have collective wine cellars that will make uh, bulk purchases, sorry, will make bulk purchases of inputs, which can then be at lower prices for all cooperative members. And then cooperative uh, vintners can bring their grapes to the grape cellar and they will be um, fermented collectively. Uh, and marketed collectively so that someone whose talent is raising grapes, 
you know, doesn't have to be basically a congl- a, a, a small business con- conglomerate. Um, and so those types of structures and techniques are incredibly successful. Um, and that was kind of the type of thing that the Farmers Alliance uh, was experimenting with and just got completely shut down by these kleptocratic networks. And so the distressing thing that I came out with in... or yeah, that emerged with in this exploration of the resistance movements of the time was that while many of their um, solutions were indeed eventually adopted, including, for example, equal pay for equal work for women, which, you know, uh, we're getting close, we're not there yet, but we're a lot closer, that was a demand of some of the unions in the 1870s. It was in the charter of a labor union. Um but so a lot of these uh, solutions have been eventually adopted, not in the lifetime of any of those movements, and that is what I found to be the most sobering um, realization to emerge from that exploration of that period, which is that it looks to me as though what allowed some of those reforms to take place was the series of utterly devastating worldwide catastrophes that struck in the first half of the 20th century, which is to say the First World War, the Depression, and the Second World War. And that is to recall two world wars, industrialization of warfare, the nuclear bomb, two genocides, uh, a pandemic that puts this one to shame, and a global economic meltdown. And that's really scary. And that, to me, is what the urgency of this book is, 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 is we are on almost the same set of railroad tracks that the United States and the world were on in the late 19th and very early 20th centuries. The pattern is almost identical. And the only thing that shook us off it was the kind of solidarity that often emerges in times of great systemic, great, I want to say, widespread catastrophe. And as bad as the economic meltdown of 2008 was, and as bad as the current pandemic is, I don't think they're quite reaching the threshold yet. The urgency for me of this effort to curb kleptocracy in this country is that the the disasters that lie on the horizon if we don't are, are almost unimaginable are you speaking um in large part about uh catastrophic climate change that could be one certainly but i don't know i mean uh, you know it could who you know so we have pandemic which which aligns with the pandemic of 28, uh, sorry, 1918. We had 2008, which aligns with the stock market crash of, of uh, 1929, almost identically, preceded in each case by a couple of years by uh, a terrorist attack on Wall Street. Huh, it's really amazing. There was a terrorist attack on Wall Street in 1920, and there was a terrorist attack on Wall Street in 2001 that were explicitly motivated by the same things. As much as we got distracted by the apparent religious covering of Al-Qaeda, as I said before, I discovered there's a lot of anti-corruption um, driving 
religious extremism in the in the world today. So those are parallels that we can say, okay, it was the same thing that happened then, same thing that happened now. We laid the seeds of catastrophic climate or climate change, or I want to go broader and say environmental devastation. We laid those seeds back then in the late 19th century and early 20th centuries. So yeah, there's a parallel there too. I'm just destiny can come up with catastrophes we've never even imagined. Who knows what it could be? Well, I want to ask you a question that isn't really brought up in your book, but I think you're in a unique position to at least it. And among the things you've just mentioned, the, 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 the pandemic through which we're going, the prospect of the, the real, real repercussions of clat- uh, catastrophic climate change, which are happening much sooner than the conservative projections yeah. would have led us to believe. At the same time, there is the proliferation of various conspiracy theories that are being um, cultivated and accepted well-meaning people and i can i don't know why but among them is um this reaction to the united nations 2030 agenda are you familiar with the conspiracy theories around that no i'm not but i i I love this question i love this question let you know because we get into some murky waters here um there are some very far out marvel comics type conspiracy theories as you put it um that need to be you know as clearly and repeatedly debunked as possible that being said there are also some conspiracies conspiracies do do actually exist and that's kind of what i'm talking about now i'm not saying that there are five people sitting in a room who have you know planned out you know exactly you know who are pedophiles and organizing the entire united states political economy to serve their pedophilia however you know, it take a look at a book like Dark Money by Jane Meyer or Democracy in Chains by um, Nancy McLean, who really show that there was a conspiracy, um, again, by conducted by a sometimes turbulent, sometimes beset by internal rivalries, shifted in dynamic group of the mega rich who you know not only delivered us um the kind of kleptocratic capture of our politics and economy that we're now looking at but also things like the reversed views on climate change um that was a deliberate uh heavily funded information campaign which worked and it was a conspiracy you know it was a bunch of people working in secret Um, The other thing I would like to say when we're, you know, then debunking the Marvel Comics style of conspiracy theorizing is sometimes a little bit too much contempt is dished out. So let's take, quote unquote, anti-vaxxers. We are currently living at a moment when any 
um, serious exploration of, for example, the Pfizer vaccine for COVID indicates that there are some real problems with the very rapid rollout of something that you know, presumably is going to be jabbed into millions of people's arms. It is a revolutionary new approach to vaccination. It is um, therefore in, uh, ought to be having even stronger and, and more lengthy controls and testing, but rather is having weaker and shorter ones. Uh, it requires a, uh, an extraordinary cold chain um, and will be administered now you know, frankly, by people wearing white coats who not so long ago were telling us that uh, opioid medications were not addictive. The idea that Americans maybe should be skeptical about this, um, I don't think that's, you know, a, a contemptible conspiracy theory. I know that some of the ways that people are afraid of vaccines are, you know, the, uh, you know are marvelous version. But I'm skeptical and concerned about the initial rollout of these vaccines. So, uh, you know, so just more broadly talking about the, the sort of um, what now is getting branded as conspiracy theorizing, I think we have to be just a little bit more um, nuanced in the thinking about that. Well, I think that these, um, th the appeal of these is that uh, average people sense there are conspiracies That's they don't right. they don't know exactly how and you talk about since the demise of the soviet union these uh, networks have become globalized um i don't want to go into that i you mentioned that uh politics and finance have been captured the judiciary has been captured. Uh, let us end talking about McDonald, McDonald versus the U.S., a unanimous decision by the uh, Supreme Court of the United States. Ruth Bader Ginsburg wrote the opinion. Uh, we only have she, about five minutes, so take it, yep. please. She didn't actually write the opinion in that case. She wrote oh. the opinion in a previous case in the series, and Elaine Kagan wrote the opinion in the next case that just was breaking as the book as uh, on corruption in America was going to press. So. What um, you raise here, first of all, is uh, back to the Hydra metaphor and these interlock or interweaving networks. What's so important, and, and even the very definition of corruption, what's so important about corruption understood this way is that it's not just about quid pro quo bribery that, you know, I you know, slip you, you know, a um, uh, gift certificate for your favorite restaurant and you're gonna do a really nice uh review of my book on corruption in america right that what matters about corruption is these networks who put people network members in public office and their role is to bend and twist the instruments of power to serve the network rather than the public. Now, I'm not saying that, that all of the Supreme Court justices are actively playing that role. However, you know, Lewis Powell, who is an earlier Supreme Court justice, very much was. And if you read on corruption in America, you'll see what I mean by that. But 
the case that you mentioned came, the decision came down in, in the summer of 2016, just as the presidential campaign was heating up. The ex-governor of Virginia, when he had been governor, had accepted, you know, a bunch of money and gifts and, you know, stuff like that in return for leveraging, trying to get Virginia state government offices to either conduct clinical trials for a kind of quack medicine that his benefactor was hawking or, you know, uh, reimburse it, put it in a state, uh, list of reimbursable medications and things like that. Guys, the guy is convicted of corruption. That's a unanimous decision of a jury of his peers. The conviction is upheld on appeal unanimously. Supreme Court takes it up. It is overturned, as you said, not just overturned, overturned unanimously. Uh, my jaw dropped. And then I'm listening, you know, to a co to commentary about it on public radio. And lo and behold, the panel of experts across the political ex spectrum is also saying, we all agree. We all agree. We think this was the right decision. And, and, and the danger of that is the split between how elites the corruption and beautiful way to end brings us right to the beginning of our conversation which is increasingly narrow and legalistic and and you know kind of mincing and how we ordinary people understand corruption which is to say you know the action of these types of networks rigging the system and the problem is that as i saw around the world when there's that kind of a disconnect between the elites who control political and economic power and the ordinary people you know then some kind of explosion usually ensues and so i just like to say, you know, we've been talking among, on Corruption in America includes many pages of things that regular folks can do to get into this fight because it's going to take all of us. But it is going to take some changing of laws and enforcement of laws. I mean, Hercules did have to bash off some of the heads of this hydra in order to kill it. Like, you also have to cauterize the neck. But you do have to bash off some heads. And so, while we're thinking about criminal justice reform in this country, I think we have to be really careful to distinguish among not between non-dangerous non-violent crime and incredibly dangerous non-violent crime like fraud. Fraud handed us the savings and loan crisis. Fraud handed us the meltdown of 2008. Fraud sent four million Americans out of their homes into the streets in a, in a homeless crisis. It's an incredibly dangerous nonviolent crime. And so while we're reimagining the police and prosecution in this country, let's beef up the resources that are dedicated to uh, uh, corporate crime and corruption. One, 30 seconds for final words, Sarah Chase. Uh, get in the fight. Get in the fight, and it means uh, hold your team, your side, to its own highest standards. The most effective uh, counter move that kleptocratic networks across the uh, around the world use uh, to defeat us, to divide us up along identities, and we've. We've started getting really good at spotting corruption on the other side of the political or gender or race or other identity divide. We're not so good at holding our own people up to their highest standards, and we're not going to win so long as the, kleptoc the kleptocratic network has the money and has the uh, power at the moment. We've 
numbers, but that means we need to bring bear, and that means a cross-cutting egalitarian coalition. Thank you so much, Joy, for having me on this show and for your careful read of On Corruption in America. Well, Sarah Chase, thank you very much for your work uh, over the many years and um, especially bringing us the perspective from your time in Afghanistan, living among Afghani people. You were not like some expat living in a hotel somewhere. Um, very valuable. And I look forward to every year up next. It's, uh, it's very, very important. Thank you so much. Thank you, Joy. Let's see. Um, the views and opinions expressed on Forthright Radio are those of the speaker and do not necessarily um, represent those of the station's staff, its members, board of directors, or contributors. And we have been speaking today on Forthright Radio with Sarah Chase. Her latest book is On Corruption in America and What is at Stake. It's uh, published by Knopf and there is so much more in it than we were able to get to today. Uh, I, I really cannot recommend it enough. Forthright Radio is a Beyond the Deep End production broadcast each first and third Wednesday of the month from the Philo Studios of KZYXNZ, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. Engineer Rich Culbertson, I'm Joy LaClaire, and you can hear past Forthright Radio programs by going to our website, forthright.media. I want to thank Thank all of the listeners who contri have contributed recently to our fund drives. Uh, if nothing else, corruption is one of the reasons that we really must keep Mendocino County public broadcasting and all community radio stations thriving. And we have to do it together. I thank you so much for doing your part. Till next time, this is Joy LaClaire signing out for now. Thank you.